Blog Talk Radio. Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I would have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. Well, I am pleased to introduce Professor Rebecca J. Scott, author of Freedom Papers, An Atlantic Odyssey in the Age of Emancipation, and co-authored with Jean Hebra for a discussion on how they trace one family across five generations and three continents into slavery and then back into freedom. Freedom Papers is the 2012 recipient of the Albert J. Beveridge Award and the James A. Raleigh Prize in Atlantic History given by the American Historical Association. Professor Scott teaches history and law at the University of Michigan. She is also a recipient of the Guggenheim Fellowship and a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. So let me give a warm welcome to Professor Rebecca Scott. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be with you. Oh, just delighted to have you. Well, let's start off with just a statement or a question. You know, I'm curious. How do you develop the idea of tracing one family's Atlantic itinerary as a way of thinking about race and citizenship in the 19th century? Well, like many projects, it began with an accident, but accidents happen in part and become fruitful because you have ideas already swirling around in your mind. So already swirling around in my mind was the question of how to capture for us now many years later some sense of how people develop their own consciousness of their rights, how they decide to struggle for those rights, and when and under what circumstances they are sometimes victorious. Uh And so I've studied this from various angles. I've done books that were comparative history. I've looked at the dynamics of slave emancipation in Cuba. But in 2004, when I was in the archives in Havana, Cuba, and a colleague and I were going through boxes of letters sent to General Maximo Gomez, one of the surviving leaders of Cuba's War of Independence, And we came across a letter 
that was inexplicable. It was typed in purple ink on letterhead from Belgium. Now, most of the letters in these boxes were handwritten on scraps of paper from ordinary Cuban soldiers writing to their former commanding officer about their disappointments at the end of the war. But this one was a very formal commercial request. So at first glance, we probably might not even have read it because we were interested in ordinary people's ideas of what the goals of Cuban independence were. But it was just puzzling enough and it began to start ringing some bells because this man, Edward Tinchant, T-I-N-C-H-A-N-T, wrote asking permission to use the general's portrait on his very finest line of Belgian cigars. Now, that on the face of it would be just a commercial request. If you're making cigars in Belgium, associating those cigars with Cuba might be a good marketing technique. Mm-hmm. But what... But what this cigar maker did was to say, perhaps a few words about my family history will help persuade you of the sincerity of my request. And he then went on to say that he himself might be remembered by some of the soldiers in Cuba because he had been himself a Union soldier in the 6th Louisiana Volunteers Banks Division in Louisiana during the Civil War and that he had served in the Louisiana Constitutional Convention during Reconstruction. So that immediately caught my attention. That Constitutional Convention produced one of the most progressive and exciting constitutions ever to hold in the southern state that guaranteed equal access to public transportation, public accommodation. It made it legal to marry across what was then seen as the color line. It was an extraordinary document, and I wondered... How on earth did a Belgian cigar maker end up writing Louisiana's constitution? So the story just was puzzling. It just didn't make a lot of sense. And then he went on, Edward Tachon, in this letter to the general, to say, I'm born in France, and I am of Haitian descent. So at that moment, I suddenly realized that this man's life, which he was recounting in 1899 in a letter mailed from Belgium to Havana, had somehow, in in genealogy, reached all the way back to the Haitian Revolution. And he then explained that his parents had relocated to New Orleans, but that they had left New Orleans, moved to France, in order to raise their six sons in a land where no infamous laws or stupid prejudices could prevent them from becoming men. And so I realized that what Edward Tachon was signaling to the general was that they shared a commitment to the fight against racism. He was doing it obliquely. He wasn't making explicit reference to his own color, but I knew, and the general may well have known, that to be a soldier from New Orleans on the Union side in 1863 was very likely to be a man of color, and that reference to stupid laws, infamous laws, and stupid prejudices was a clear reference to the racism of Louisiana's legal structure prior to the Civil War. So it, to be to answer your question, how did we ever get the idea of doing this? It was a completely um, it was a completely attractive idea just from within the letter, but we had no idea if it was true. It was perfectly possible that this mm-hmm. man that this man was just an adroit fabulist. He was just creating 
a story that would appeal to the general so that he could get permission to use the general's picture. So then the question was this imagined arc that we thought we could see from the Cuban War of Independence, which was a cross-racial struggle for independence from Spanish colonialism, arcing back through the U.S. Reconstruction period, the Civil War, maybe through France's Revolution of 1848. The numbers seem to match. And then all the way back to the Haitian Revolution. So the question was, could you do it? Did this family somehow, in its person and in its memories, actually represent the great anti-racist struggles of the 19th century, even though they were only small, single participants. So the the seduction of the story was already there, I think, uh, in the moments as I finished transcribing that first, that first letter. And I can imagine just your reaction after reading this story. I mean, how many people could have a primary source sitting there with him explaining what happened to him and his family and not want to take it to the next level to prove that this story indeed was true. Exactly. But at the same time, we have to resist falling in love with the characters we find in the archives. We become entranced (laughs) by them. And so we had to be willing to acknowledge, for example, that when Edward Pinchon said in the letter, my parents were born at Gonaïve at the beginning of the 19th century, Mm -hmm. we realized That was a rather sweeping claim because what was born at Gonaive at the beginning of the 19th century was the independent nation of Haiti. That was where independence was declared. And so it was a bit like saying I was born in Philadelphia on the 4th of July, 1776. It was almost too good to be true, and it was too good to be true. He wasn't quite right about that. Edward was a little mistaken about that. His mother was born in the town of Jeremy, which was in Saint-Domingue, and his father was born in Baltimore, and I think he kind of knew that, but it made a nice flourish. And it oh, was <laughs> it was a gesture toward revolutionary Haiti, and it was that gesture toward revolutionary Haiti that sent us into the French colonial archives where we were able, as you know, because you've read the book, to yes. reach back uh, yet another generation further and find Edward's grandmother. Okay, well help us, you know, take us on this on this journey. And for the listeners, if you have a, a pencil and paper, try to <laughs> jot down a timeline as as this journey is shared with us. So how is the book organized? Well, it's interesting, and you know this because you're a researcher and many of your listeners are researchers. In some sense, if you want to tell a story like this, First, you have to dig it backwards, and then you have to tell it forwards. So the digging backwards part now. So now we'll walk the timeline backwards. We begin with the letter, which is dated 1899. It's at that moment when the United States military forces, having participated in Cuba's War of Independence, are occupying Cuba. So the General Maximo Gomez is in an awkward position. He's been part of the the Cuban army that won the fight against Spain, but his country is under U.S. military occupation. So that's the instant that the letter is sent by Edward Tanchon, and he and Edward signals to Maximo Gomez that he hopes for the ultimate triumph of Cuba's independence. So he's already signaling that he understands that military occupation was not what they sought. So that's our first research point, 1899. Then, with Edward's words, we can see back as far as 1841, 
his birth in France, and we can envision what he tells us is his parents' birthplace and time. So it would be in Saint-Domingue, Haiti, at the very beginning of the 19th century. Now, that's that was almost right. We were able to find his parents' uh, marriage contract, and in the marriage contract there is reference to Edward's mother's mother, who at the time of that marriage, so now we're back to 1822, at the time of the marriage of Edward's parents, his mother's mother is said still to be in Saint-Domingue, what is then independent Haiti. So we realized that this family, at the turn of the 18th to the 19th century, had been part of that great migration of war refugees, tumbled out of Saint-Domingue, Haiti, when Napoleon sent his forces to try to occupy the island, the colony, and to try to overturn the rule of Toussaint Louverture. So that was what cued us to try to find traces of the generation even before Edward's mother, to try and find Edward's grandparents, particularly his grandmother, by looking into French colonial records and other records that might refer to those war refugees. Okay. And we succeeded thanks to our discovery of the baptismal record of Edward's mother, which named the two grandparents. We then consulted colleagues, and we said, has anyone seen any reference to a man named Michel Vincent? And a colleague in Canada, uh, Paul Lachance, sent us a note saying, well, you know, 35 years ago I filled out a note card while I was sitting in the archives in Paris. Here's the reference. I think you'll find something on Michel Vincent in this particular source. So we called for the microfilm of that source from the Mormon microfilms from the Family History Library. And in that microfilm, there was a little tiny reference to a freedom paper of a woman named Marie-Francoise. And so we thought, well, that was the first name. Those were the first names of Edward's mother's mother. Maybe this was her freedom paper. Now, here, this is a cautionary tale for myself and for your listeners. I didn't realize when I looked at those words, Marie-Francoise, I didn't realize how unlikely it was that any given freedom paper would actually be that particular Marie-Francoise. There were half a million slaves in saint uh-huh. And as my French co-author, Jean Hébreu, said to me, Rebecca, do you realize how many of them were named Marie? (laughs) There were thousands of women named Marie and thousands named Marie-Francoise. But I naively and innocently thought, that must be her. And so I had a conference engagement in France, and I climbed on it after the conference was over. I took a train to the French colonial archives in Aix-en-Provence, and I went and found the original volume, and I opened it up, and I tracked down the Freedom Paper, and I started to read it, and it said, I, Michel Vincent, own and hereby give give freedom to Marie-Francoise, called Rosalie, black woman of the Poulard Nation, and to her four children. And I kept reading through, and it was him, and that was her. So we had had a stroke of extraordinary good fortune, and we realized that the two of them, 
that is to say Edward's maternal grandparents, had fled as refugees, and so that was why the Freedom Paper was in an unusual source, in a consular record from Cuba, French consular record from Cuba. But the word in that document that really was electrifying was the word poulard. Marie-Françoise called Rosalie black woman of the Poulard nation. So I returned back to my teaching and my classes at the University of Michigan, and I rushed to talk to my Senegalese colleague, Mamadou Jouf, and I said, Mamadou, I've just discovered that the grandmother of Edward Tinchon is of the Poulard nation. What exactly does that signify? And he just laughed. He said, Rebecca, millions of people in Senegal speak the Pular language. Were you not aware that it was one of the major ethnic groups of Senegal? And I said, no, I'm afraid I wasn't. Um, and he said, well, there's lots to learn about the history of the trade in captives from the Pular nation across the Atlantic. And I said, well, when are you next going to Senegal, and can we go with you? So we did. We went to Senegal, and we tried to learn about what must have been the history of Edward's grandmother, taken captive probably in the Middle Valley of the Senegal River, probably sent as a captive out of the port of Saint-Louis-du-Sénégal, crossing the Atlantic to the French colony of Saint-Domingue, and sold into slavery, and only at that moment probably given the name Rosalie. Sold, interestingly enough, and I think for your listeners who um, were asking questions in an, earlier, in an earlier session about the ownership of slaves within families of persons of African descent, the first person to whom Rosalie was sold was a man named Alexis Kuba, who was himself of African descent. He had lived most of his life as a slave. He had obtained his freedom. Shortly after obtaining his freedom, he purchased another slave, but the woman he purchased was his wife, and so he was able then to manumit her, having purchased her, and then to, legit to marry her and to legitimate their children. Then he'd purchased another slave, and my colleague Jean Hébrard did the math and looked at the data and said, Oh, that was surely his mother-in-law. Probably his wife had said, you must also protect uh, my mother from slavery. And so Alexis Kuba had already purchased two slaves in order to free them, and then he purchased the young Rosalie. So in answer to the question that's often asked, what did slavery mean within families who are themselves of African descent, we get a picture here of how complicated it was. So Rosalie may have been the first slave who was purchased actually to be employed as a domestic. The other two purchases that he made were to constitute his own family. But even Rosalie, we have no good way of knowing what kind of labor she did. We just know that she was subsequently sold, and again to a person of African descent, but this time to a very prosperous trader named Marthe Guillaume, who was a woman whose parents were African. She herself was um, of African descent, and she purchased Rosalie. And Marthe Guillaume did a fair amount of buying and selling of slaves, but in the case of Rosalie, she probably retained her as a domestic because we know that a few years later, Marthe Guillaume decided to manumit Rosalie, to free her, and she went to a public notary to declare her intention to free Rosalie. But the governor refused to sign the manumission document. So in that circumstance, Rosalie probably began to live as if she were a legally free woman, 
but she would not have had proper proof of that freedom if anything happened. So at that point, we began to understand that the freedom paper that we'd found that was dated 1803 and sitting in those consular records was not actually Rosalie's true freedom paper. Rosalie had become free through the action of Martha Guillaume in releasing her and then through the Haitian Revolution's abolition of slavery. She was already entirely free when Michel Vincent drew up that document that said, she's my slave and I hereby free her. So we suddenly realized that all of our stereotypes about wealthy planters with beautiful black mistresses that we had imagined might lie behind a freedom paper like that, that was all wrong. They were a couple. They had children. He was a Frenchman who was pretty poor. She was an African woman who seems to have been quite skilled and resourceful. But when the moment came that war swept across the land where they lived, she realized, Rosalie realized, that she would need written proof of freedom. It wouldn't be good enough if she had to flee or if Napoleon won. It wouldn't be good enough to say, I'm free because of the revolution made by Toussaint Louverture. You couldn't say that if Napoleon won. He wanted to defeat Toussaint. You couldn't say that if you were a refugee to Cuba. They would never want to hear a word about Toussaint Louverture. So she needed a piece of paper. And that's when Michel Vincent, the Frenchman, who was actually himself the son of a notary, he knew how to draw up something that looked sort of like a freedom paper. And so the document that had sent us to do research in Senegal and that it enabled us to trace Rosalie actually turned out to be, well, sometimes my French co-author called it a forgery, but he could see that that always made me wince. We now just say Rosalie knew how to bring paper into being in order to assure the freedom that she knew she deserved. And so she had that freedom paper with her as a war refugee in Cuba. Right. Well, we're going to take a quick break and come back. This is a okay. fascinating story, but let me okay. like this, take a quick break. Okay. Very good. That's fine. I'll wait. Yes. Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you have been listening to a fascinating story being told by Professor and author Rebecca J. Scott. Well, we have heard about Rosalie. We know that Rosalie has been taken from Africa as a slave and sent to Saint-Domingue. So, what we're hearing is that their primary documents 
that are being found. And so I'm going to turn it back to you, Professor Scott, so that you can tell us more about this journey and what happens next. Thank you so much, and I also appreciate the, the comments that your listeners have been sending in. It's a real pleasure to know that people it, that people themselves have the journeys of research to develop and construct family narratives. It's an exciting enterprise that I think we're all involved in collectively. So in this saga of Rosalie, which, as I say, it is not a novel. It is, it is a story that we pieced together from fragmentary documents. We have five documents about the period that Rosalie spent as a slave in Saint-Domingue. We have a few documents about the time she was a war refugee in Cuba. So from 1803 until 1808-09, so, uh, uh, she was a war refugee in Cuba. Her daughter Elizabeth was with her. Her partner, Michel Vincent, who was older than she was, he passed away during the time they were in Cuba. So she had her child, and she had this freedom paper that had been created by Michel Vincent before he died. But these were very fragile proofs of freedom. And she was an African-born woman who was probably always at risk of potential re-enslavement. If someone had managed to make a convincing case to a judge that somehow he had had a claim to her or she had had a claim to Rosalie, she was always vulnerable. And then she became intensely more vulnerable in 1808 when Napoleon invaded the Iberian Peninsula. And so suddenly, war refugees like the 10,000 people from Saint-Domingue who were in refuge in Cuba, suddenly these were French nationals in a Spanish colony at a time when Spain and France were now at war. And so all of the refugees were ordered to depart from Cuba. Now, you know from your reading of Lawrence Powell's The Accidental City and from discussions with him, you know that the majority of these refugees went on to New Orleans, and we had always assumed that, of course, this family that we were tracing had also gone on to New Orleans. We knew that because we knew that the family had ended up there. But what we found when we dug into the documents was that Rosalie made a very difficult choice. She herself was vulnerable to re-enslavement if someone could somehow seize power over her. Her daughter Elizabeth, who was of mixed European-African ancestry, had a godmother also of mixed ancestry, someone who would be categorized as a, as a femme de couleur libre, a free woman of color. And the godmother was willing to take Elizabeth under her protection and take her to New Orleans. And Rosalie made what must have been, we have no, direct, we have no way of directly knowing what her thinking was, but she made what must have been a very difficult choice, which was to place her daughter in the custody of the godmother as they climbed on boats for New Orleans. And Rosalie stayed for a little while, we think, in Cuba, and then she found someone who would take her in a small boat across the Windward Passage to the free nation of Haiti, the one place in the Atlantic world at that moment where an African-born woman on the American side of the uh, Atlantic could be certain of freedom and citizenship. So she was separated from her daughter, and she lived, she continued to live, in Haiti while her daughter was raised by the godmother in New Orleans. And so that's the daughter, Elizabeth, who then marries a carpenter who's also a man of color named Jacques, and they begin to, to found a family in New Orleans. 
And so this is where you begin to get the intersection of the family story and the question of how documents come to exist that enable us to understand a family story. Elizabeth and Jacques did fairly well. He would buy small pieces of land and build a shotgun house and then sell the house and then buy another piece of land. And they had children. They had uh, all boys. They had one after another boy. And in 1835, so at that point Elizabeth was 36 years old, she went to a notary in New Orleans. And the notarial records are probably the most important single source for us for understanding Louisiana history of this kind of people of color. She went to a notary and she said, I have here a copy, an official certified copy of my baptismal record back in French colonial Saint-Domingue. And although I was an illegitimate child, and I therefore have no surname, no family name, I can show you on this official copy that my father was present at my birth and he acknowledged his paternity, and therefore I wish to take on his last name. So we could see that Elizabeth, at the age of 36, was trying to take on the kind of name that a respectable married woman in New Orleans would have. She didn't want her name every time she signed a document to broadcast her illegitimacy and, by implication, the fact that her mother had once been a slave. And the notary, actually under Louisiana law, was prohibited from doing that because under Louisiana law, under the Civil Code of 1808, no person of color was permitted legally to trace paternity to a white person. In other words, you couldn't go to a notary and say, look, I have proof that this was my father. But in this case, the man in question was a Frenchman, and he was dead, and it was a long time ago, and the notary had done an awful lot of business with her with Elizabeth's husband over the years as a carpenter, and so he went ahead and authorized her to correct her name, to rectify her name, as it says in the margin of the document. And thenceforth, Elizabeth would be able to sign with a first name, a Christian name, and with a surname. So she became Elizabeth Vincent. Now, here is the part that we didn't recognize when we first saw that document. When we first saw the document, we were just excited because it gave us, it was the baptismal record, so it gave us the parents' names, and we dashed off to find the, the parents, as I've just explained. But later on, when we started to write the book forward, chapter by chapter, each chapter, a different fragment of the generation arriving somewhere, and then each chapter closes with a departure, but when we were back writing the book, we looked at that document, and we both said to each other a little uneasily, how do you suppose Elizabeth suddenly got a copy of the, perf perf the proof of her birth at the age of 36? It didn't quite seem right, and I began to worry that my colleague would begin to use that word forgery again. <laughs> and so we asked ourselves, how could she have had that birth? If she'd had the birth record for years, surely she would have brought it to a notary sooner. So then we did something that I'm sure many of your listeners have done. We went and looked at the alphabetical indexed passenger lists for the Port of New Orleans. And sure enough, we found a boat having left Saint-Domingue, landing in the Port of New Orleans just a few weeks before this notarial transaction took place. And on that passenger list was the name Rosalie Vincent. And we realized that her mother, her African-born mother, now in her 70s by that point, 
had decided that the risk of setting foot in the terrible slaveholding metropolis of New Orleans, it was worth running that risk to bring that document to her daughter so that her daughter could take on the form and the name of a respectable married woman and not be stigmatized by her illegitimate birth every time her name was signed. So we suddenly could see in our mind's eye that they had not completely lost touch with each other, that Rosalie had known something of what was happening in New Orleans, and Rosalie had arranged for an official in independent Haiti to make a copy of the colonial baptismal record, and then Rosalie had brought it to New Orleans. So we were tremendously moved by the realization that when Edward Tashaw, years and years later, fought for equal rights, enlisted in the Union Army, stood on the floor of the Constitutional Convention of Louisiana in 1867, spoke of himself as a son of Africa, argued for equal rights, argued for the equal rights of women, argued for the right of any woman to sue for breach of promise of marriage, whatever her color might be, that he was carrying a long Atlantic history on his shoulders and that desire to make certain that women would not be abused by the barriers to marriage between themselves and the men with whom they lived. That was something that Edward, he had learned it from the women in his family, and he'd learned it by hearing shards of the same story that we were finding ourselves putting together. It it was for us a moment of enormous um, emotion and historical satisfaction. But there was still one more doubt, because you know, You know what it's like to be a genealogist, and you know what it's like to be a historian. You want to make certain that you've gotten it right. You don't want to tell a story that's too good to be true, and it turns out that it's false. So I kept thinking, how can we be sure that the Rosalie Vincent on that passenger list coming from Haiti is the Rosalie Vincent who would bring that that document to her daughter Elizabeth? and we were able to confirm it in the following way. We went and looked at the baptismal records for that very selfsame year in New Orleans, 1836. It turned out Elizabeth herself had just had a baby, and they took the baby to be baptized in St. Louis Cathedral in New Orleans. And so, of course, as you know, at a Catholic baptism, there's the father and the mother and the baby and the priest, and the godfather, which in this case was the uh, was also the half brother of the father, and then we looked on the line where God, where the priest would inscribe the name of the godmother, and there it was, Rosalie Vincent. At that moment in her life, Elizabeth, who was a woman of color but of mixed ancestry, and she was free and she was legally married, and she turned to an African-born woman in her 70s who had come on that boat from Haiti to provide the spiritual protection for her child. And that's how we knew that Rosalie had made it. We don't have another document about Rosalie. We don't know what happened after that baptism, but we know that she'd made it there and she'd been able to stand there as her grandson was baptized. Well, that's fantastic. Well, we have a question coming in. Okay. So I have the line open, so you can go ahead on and ask your question. Very good. Hello? Hello? You'll hear, ha- you'll hear. You should hear something in a few minutes. Okay, very good. I, I have opened the line. Okay. Okay, you can ask your question now. Good evening. Hello. Good evening. My name. 
Yeah, my name is Michael Henderson. I am glued to this story here. It is so fascinating. Uh, I, I can't tell you. You meant you made a comment, and I wanted to kind of go back to it. You mentioned in 1808 in Louisiana, there was a law that was passed whereby no free person of color could claim or trace their ancestry back to a, uh, a European white European. Exactly. Could you, it's the, could you share that? I'd be happy to explain it. I'd be happy to explain it. Um, in the, the Louisiana Civil Code is drawn up in 1808, and the process of tracing paternity in that case means not, of course, what we would think of as genealogically tracing back one's ancestry, but it means actually legally going and asserting that a person is your father. And so that, that's something which, for example, a white person could do vis-a-vis -vis some other white person. They could say, I've, you know, you could go to court and you could say, I've been improperly disinherited. My, you know, Mr. So-and-so was actually my father. Here is my proof. And then you might, for example, make a claim on the inheritance. But the code said that that legal action of claiming paternity, of trying to prove paternity at law for the purposes of recognition or inheritance, that persons of color were simply barred from undertaking that legal process. So quite independent of who their biological father actually was, they were not permitted to go at law and say, wait, wait, there's been a mistake. That was my father. I should have inherited that house. Or So it's a question of the legal proof of paternity. They're barred from doing it. It's, to, it's, it's obviously one of the many laws that were put in place to try to etch a hard and fast line between persons who were white and persons of African ancestry. It was an attempt to deny deny the biological reality. This is so fascinating. I, I have a situation just as you are explaining it, and it has been a mystery for such a long period of time. I, I, I am a descendant of a, of a person, of a uh, free person of color in Louisiana, mm -hmm. and I did find a freedom paper, a manumission document, yes. and there were some things that I'm actually tracing and tracking, and all of these bits and pieces of information are now uh, becoming much clearer to me because I found another document where this individual was got married or there was a marriage record, but yes. the, the the father of her children was a white European, and yes. for a long time I I couldn't understand why why did she have to get married right after the Louisiana was purchased in 1803, and she she got married around 1804 uh, yes. to this gentleman that happened to happened to provide the family with our surname. And that yes. has been a great mystery, and and you have just <laughs> solved one of the one of my <laughs> longest. <laughs> and I thank well, you so very much. This is just fascinating what you're what you're saying tonight. I really appreciate that. Well, I thank you, and for for the many people who in, are involved in research of this kind, I'd I'd say I hope you enjoy the story, and I hope you enjoy the footnotes, <laughs> because we've done extremely detailed footnotes so that anyone with a question like the one that your listener just posed about the technical issue of the 1808 code or where exactly you go to find a sacramental record, we've done notes that are, I think, I hope, a real roadmap for other researchers to documents in French, in Spanish, and in English created in that extraordinary place that is that is New Orleans. And then the story, of course, uh, goes on. It continues because 
We follow it all the way down to Edward. We figure out how he gets from France to New Orleans, how he comes to join the Union Army, and how it is that he leaves the United States then after the collapse of Reconstruction, when he no longer sees any realistic prospect of attaining citizenship and, re and respect as a man of color, and he returns to Belgium and becomes a merchant in Belgium, and that's how it happens that he's writing his letter from Antwerp when he writes to the general. What a fascinating story. But it doesn't Thanks. end there, right? No, it doesn't end there. We thought it would. <laughs> and, again, many of your listeners know that research does not stop just because exhaustion sets in. <laughs> so we thought we would wrap the book up. Jean-Michel Hébrard and I, we're writing this book together. We're actually writing it as two books. I've uh, penned the version that is in English from Harvard University Press that came out just a few months ago in 2012, uh, Freedom Papers and Atlantic Odyssey in the Age of Emancipation. And my co-author, Jean-Michel Hébrard, is authoring the book in French, where it will be called Les Papiers de la Liberté, same title but different language. He uses the same documents. It's the same story, but it's told in his voice and in French. So the book, there are two books in parallel. We imagined that we would wrap them up with the date of Edward's death. He died. He was living in Belgium. As you know, the Germans invaded Belgium in World War I. And we envisioned that when he fled as a war refugee in World War I to England and then died of exhaustion and a lesion on the lung, I'm afraid an occupational hazard for a cigar merchant, we thought that that would wrap the book up. That would give us the long 19th century. And that would be, in a sense, closure to the story of race in the Atlantic world in the 19th century. But then we came across one more document. And our colleague Martha Jones, who's a specialist on African-American women's history, was doing research in the database of African-American newspapers for the 20th century. And just as a courtesy to us, she said she always, just before she goes to bed or signs off, she just taps in the surname of the family we were working on, the Tashaws, just in case. You never know with a database whether she might get a hit. So she contacted us, and she said, I found an article from the Pittsburgh Courier in 1937 under the title, Mixed Blood Not So Good even in Europe. She said, I think you'd better read this article because it's about one of the Tachons. So suddenly we were hurtled forward to 1937, to the moment, of course, of the rise of Hitler and Mussolini, the rise of the racial laws in Germany. And here was a story about a young woman named Tachon from a family of cigar merchants in Antwerp in Belgium, so we knew it was the same family. And she had eloped to England because as a young woman of color, she had fallen in love with a Belgian whose parents would not allow him to marry a woman of color. And so it had become a scandal. They had left Belgium to try to marry in England. The fiancé's father had tracked them down and blocked the issuance of a marriage license, and it had hit the tabloid press. So suddenly we were flung forward another two generations into the... 20th century history of race, the history of race that arises with the, with the growth of fascism. And so we began to write an epilogue that would be that marriage. It would be the way in which the question of race reemerged in the 1930s in Europe, picking up on many of the kinds of racism and racial division that African Americans were perfectly conscious of in the United States. And that's why 
Faye Jackson, a reporter for the American Negro Press News Service, had picked up on the story, and that's why it appeared not only in the Pittsburgh Courier, but in several African-American newspapers in the U.S., because the story of a blocked marriage on grounds of race happening somehow in Antwerp and London was emblematic of the way that racism was resurgent in Europe. So we began to write what we thought would be a very small epilogue just about that wedding. And then we had been in touch with the family. They had located us about halfway through the research project. They'd been very generous. So we just contacted them to ask, could you help us situate this particular Marie-José Tachon in the family genealogy? We see that it's from the same, she's from the same family, but whose daughter is she exactly? And the reaction was people said, oh, Marie-José Tachon. Well, you'll need to talk to our cousin. So we spoke with the cousin, and the cousin said, oh, I'd better put you in touch with her granddaughter. And we contacted the granddaughter, and the granddaughter said, we've never understood what happened. They married. They came back to Antwerp in 37. They had children, 38, 39. And then, of course, in 1940, the Nazis invaded Belgium. And they said, we don't understand what happened to Marie-José, but the two of you are historians. Maybe you can help piece it together. And that began another two years of research as we tried to understand what had happened. And we now know Marie-José Tinchon, the the great-great-granddaughter of Rosalie, the grandniece of Edward, she joined the resistance against the Nazis. She put her children into the care of her sister. She went into clandestine work against the Nazis. She was arrested by the Gestapo in 1944. She was imprisoned in Saint-Gilles Prison in Belgium, in Brussels. And when the Allies landed at Normandy, the Nazis anticipated, the Germans occupying Belgium, and the German high command anticipated that perhaps the Normandy landing was a diversion and the real landing would come at Calais. And if the real landing came at Calais, the Allies might reach Brussels in Belgium very quickly in which case they might be able to open the prisons, liberate the political prisoners, and incorporate all the knowledge that political activists had, incorporate that into the struggle against the Germans. So I think it was two days after the Normandy landing, the Gestapo in Brussels ordered all the male political prisoners put on a train for Buchenwald camp, and in the following week all the female prisoners, all the female political prisoners, to be sent to Ravensbrück slave labor camp in Germany. And so Marie-José Tinchon was placed on that train and sent to Ravensbrück. And we realized to our horror that Ravensbrück was indeed a slave labor camp. It was privately owned. It was a private uh, it was owned by members of the SS. It was operating within, obviously, Nazi policy, but it was uh, providing workers to the to an electronics factory, and then they were also working within the camp to produce uniforms, and they were worked as slaves were worked beyond human capacity for endurance. There is a vivid and heartbreaking account by an ethnographer, French ethnographer, Germaine Tillon, who was herself a prisoner in Ravensbrück, and she survived. And when she wrote about it, she said, there's no other language to describe it but slavery. And Marie-José was worked uh, there as a slave laborer. She became ill. We don't know exactly what happened. 
Um, and then she was sent to the gas chambers, and she was gassed by the Nazis two weeks before the Russian army liberated the camp. And that, I'm afraid, is the epilogue we never meant to write. We never meant to write it. But once we had the materials, we simply had to construct that narrative. We had to, we had to do it for the truth of the story, and we had to do it because because Marie-Josée's daughter still lives and her granddaughter still lives, and you can imagine how baffling it was uh, to simply have your mother vanish in the midst of the war. The family sent you know, inquiries to the Red Cross, desperate to know what had happened to her. And it was only, able, it was only possible to reconstruct it after the war and very difficult to understand everything that had happened. Uh, uh, uh. Wow. <laughs> the, only, the only possible... There's no way to make that story other than sad at the end. There's no way to make it other than sad that a book that opened in a slave ship leaving Senegal closes in a slave labor camp in Nazi Germany. There's no way to make that other than sad. The book itself, of course, is full of the story of how people managed, of how they coped, of how they met challenges, of how branches of the family achieved some prosperity. And in truth, even now when Marie-Josée is just a memory, it's a memory now that has a shape and a weight. We have, we have Marie-Josée's picture on the cover of the book. Uh, people can click on the website of Harvard University Press. They'll see the cover, or they can go to my website, RebeccaJScott.com. Right, and I think most cover. of the people perhaps have seen the cover of the book because yeah. she is beautiful. She's beautiful. That's the passport picture she had made in the day she turned 21 in 1937 so that she could cross the English Channel and marry the man she believed that she loved. Uh, so it's a, But the story, in some sense, by putting it together as a story, there's no way, there's no way we can breathe life back into people who are gone, but we can perhaps tell their story in a way so that it becomes something we can reach for and also leave the story a little bit open so that maybe someone else can also reach for part of it and develop aspects of it uh, that we did not. So we hope there's a, there's a beautiful quotation from a French historian, if you'll, may, if you'll allow me to read one, one sentence uh, that we quote at the very end of our, we actually quote it not at the end of the book, but deep at the end of our acknowledgments. And this is a French historian named Arlette Farge, and she's written a beautiful book called The Allure of the Archive, one that you'll, one that you'll want to talk about on this program when it's, when it's published. It's coming out from Yale University Press in the fall. And here's what Arlette Farge says, and I think many of your listeners will recognize this feeling. She says, One does not bring back to life those whom we find cast up in the archive, but that is no reason to make them suffer a second death. The space is narrow within which to develop a story that will neither cancel out nor dissolve these lives, that will leave them available so that one day and elsewhere another narrative may be built from their enigmatic presence. Wow. That's wonderful. That's beautiful. And we have a question coming in. Okay, I'm delighted. Yes. Uh, okay. Uh, you have a question or a comment? Yes. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Okay. Wow. I, I'm um, uh, stunned by this story. I, um, my initial question, in fact, has since evaporated, but uh, I guess my one thing that I hope after hearing what happened uh, to this this woman, you know, dying um, and being mm-hmm. gassed 
Um, you mentioned, however, that you spoke with some descendants. And, yes. and can you at least share uh, who does remain from that family? I guess I, I, I'm trying to find a happy ending for myself. I'm trying to at least know that there are some descendants of Rosalie who still can say, yes, this is our great, great uh, mm-hmm. ancestor who has some legacy, I just want to know um, who was it that you were in contact with who was the granddaughter of the person whose story Mm -hmm. was in the courier? Can you share that a little bit? I'm happy to. And actually, they're a big family. (laughs) There are many, many descendants. Uh, The person who, one of the people who was enormously helpful to us was a man named Philippe Streuf, who lives uh, in Brussels, and he has, uh, I think he has ten brothers and sisters. Oh. So they're, bra- okay. you know, the uh, Jacques and Elizabeth had six boys, and then they, uh, all of them married and had children. So it's a wide and extended family. The sad story of Marie-José is particularly powerful and relevant because of the issue of racial discrimination and the ways in which violence is imposed upon people. But I don't mean to suggest that the line was extinguished. So there's a, there are a whole batch of Tanchons in Belgium. In fact, when I took the first copies of the book to Brussels last summer, even their 12-year-old nephew came to get an inscribed copy. So there are many Tanchons flourishing under various surnames, of course, because there have been marriages and remarriages. And on Marie-Josée's side... Uh, the woman who died in the camps, her daughter survived. Her daughter lives on a little farm uh, on an island in the Atlantic where she cultivates a garden and imagines all the different places that her family had been. She remembers always hearing when she was growing up about a branch of the family in Mexico, and there are still descendants of the family in Mexico. Uh, And and then Marie-Josée's granddaughter, uh, Michelle Kleinjen is an artist. She lives in the south of France. She's actually painted uh, paintings of what she envisions her great-great-grandparents to have looked like, and she is one of the people whom we thank very warmly. She shared family documents about her grandmother that were absolutely uh, absolutely indispensable for constructing the epilogue. And we're very, very glad that the book can go into the hands of many descendants of Rosalie. And there are undoubtedly other descendants of Rosalie. I've occasionally gotten emails from people saying that they are members, they are distant members of the Tanchon family. So maybe being on Blog Talk Radio and if people post it on their yeah. Facebook pages, we'll find some more and they'll learn that this portion of the story has been has been reconstructed. So for the family, there is there is great uh, great satisfaction, exactly as you as you anticipate, in being able to draw the story together. And what they are now is very impatient for my colleague Jean-Michel Hébert to finish the French edition, because for Belgians, of course, that's the language for French-speaking Belgians. That's the language that will be most accessible. So we're aiming to do that by by the end of the summer. Well, thank you. I appreciate that because many of us in the Americas, we have stories where branches have taken Mm -hmm. bad turns. I mean, many of us have Mm -hmm. ancestors who were lynched Mm -hmm. and and reached Mm -hmm. for ends, but our our family legacy still continued, and we must Mm -hmm. still tell all of those stories. So thank you for that 
piece of information. And thank you uh, for your work. This has just been remarkable to hear, and you and your co-author are to be, you know, congratulated. Just thank you so much. Thank you, and thank you all for listening, because we, as we were telling the story, someone said to us, you know you have lightning in a bottle. <laughs> I had never heard that <laughs> phrase before, but I liked it. And, of course, for us, our great ambition is to just make sure that anyone who would enjoy reading the book, would enjoy reading the story, finds out about it. Because, it, you know, when you when you publish a book with an academic press, it means it's available everywhere. Anybody can click on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or Harvard University Press's own website. But it's only through things like Blog Talk Radio and through the warmth of your listeners that the word actually spreads from, well, from book I want, group to I book definitely group. want the word to spread. So all of the listeners, please go and purchase Freedom Papers and Atlantic Odyssey and the Age of Emancipation. This is a book that you definitely want to put on your Christmas list. And thank you so, so very much. I mean, you've been talking for about an hour. <laughs> I think it's time to take a break, but you have been wonderful, and you are an excellent researcher as well as a fantastic storyteller. So thank you very, very much for joining us tonight and to sharing this this wonderful story with the listeners. Many thanks to you. Tonight and to sharing this this wonderful story with the listeners. Many thanks to you. Tonight and to sharing this this wonderful story with the listeners. Many thanks to you.